uh, last week I talked about um, idolatry a bit, uh, about other gods, and that God was the true God. And I'm here to inform you that um, there is one idol that is the worst of all idols, and that would be college football. Um, because when you go to sleep at night thinking you're Irish, you're doing fine, it's a tight game, but you're going to be okay, and you wake up in the morning, you're not sure if you want to be a Christian anymore. Um, it's a cruel God. It's a cruel God. Especially cruel because of Ohio State. Um, boo, you like me? You don't like Ohio State either. I knew I loved you. Um, so in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness covered over it. And then the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. As you know, we are in the heart of talking about foundations, and one of the most important foundational things is our life with God. And so what, what, do, you, what do you think about God? How do, how do you think about God, if you think of God at all? Some of you I know. Feels like absent parent. Some Santa in the sky. Some of us, a grand idea. For some of us, uh, a bookkeeper of moral minutia. Some of us, a cheerleader or the best life coach ever. Some, a, a tyrant, a distant tyrant. Who do you think God is? Scripture has all sorts of really cool images like lion, like loving father, creator. Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Counselor, Redeemer, and Comforter. We're in these foundations. We're in Genesis 1 because we're in these foundations, because that's where it leads us. Because Genesis 1 through 3, it, it gives us the foundations of reality. And today we want to talk about the foundation that is our life with God. If you were at the congregational meeting a while back, where um, Eric talked about um, our kind of approach, what, what we're kind of concentrating on um, in, in the next ministry year, securing the beautiful and strong foundations of Redeemer. You saw pictures of his brother's old house, which is both old, not belonging to him anymore, but also old as in many years old. Um, and they had buttressed and, and built other pylons next to these other pylons that were 100 years old that were still keeping the house uh, uh, up. And that's what we're kind of doing now is by, by filling out our well-prayed-through staffing plan, upfitting this beautiful old building, and increasing our generosity both to and from the church. That's what we're doing, helping buttress those great foundations. By the way, some of you will be getting, uh, or all of you will be at one point getting a survey uh, where our campaign team is created uh, to ask about your thoughts. They call it a needs assessment um, of, of things that you would want to see the foundations um, built up in our midst, so you'll get some for, get uh, some input. We'll get some of your input on that. Okay, back with life with God. In April, I introduce you to an amazing book. I highly recommend it. Um, it's by Michael Reeves. It's I think twenty something years old now. Called "Delighting in the Trinity." It's unbelievable, and he starts off with this quote. I have it out for you. 
Um, what is your Christian life like? What is the shape of your gospel, your faith? In the end, it will depend on what you think God is like. Who God is drives everything. So what is the human problem? Is it merely that we have strayed from a moral code? Or is it something worse, that we have strayed from Him? What is salvation? Is it merely that we are brought back as law-abiding citizens? Or is it something better, that we are brought back as beloved children? What is the Christian life about? Is it mere behavior or something deeper? Enjoying God? All of our lives are molded in the deepest way by what we think of God. In our, our philosophy of ministry tree, the fruit are up top, not things that we can control, but what we hope to see in all the work of our, of our life together. And at the very top is that statement, we participate in the life of the Trinity. That he has a life on his own. They do, and we get to participate in that. And so who is this God? The one who says, he created everything, the heavens and the earth. Who, who reveals, just in the second verse, the Spirit of God was hovering over these waters. This is not God in some generic form, but from a Christian perspective, the triune God, the only God Christians mean when they say God. It is the Trinity, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Now, the Trinity is revealed in an awesome way, but I have to give you a little secret that the word Trinity is not in the Bible anywhere. Nope, it's not there. It's simply a word that early Christians used to describe how they saw God revealing himself in the scriptures through the Old and the New Testament. What they were trying to do, these early Christians were trying to give a name to the way the Bible kind of uh, set the scene and story. Because the Bible doesn't, uh, the, the Bible teaches most things in this way by having you see the story by playing out the scene. So as you're reading the scene, remember again that this original audience is a ragtag group of newly freed slaves, former slaves now wandering in the desert. And the story unfolds with this God, this God who, the same God who rescued them from Egypt, the most powerful empire in the world. And he says, in the beginning, God, Elohim, made everything. And in that very second verse, and the spirit of Elohim was hovering over the face of the waters. Elohim is a plural proper noun. It's a name. Remember that, seventh grade grammar? Proper noun. More on that in a bit. But you'd have to be super curious what that means if you heard this. You've been taught all your life the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. Our God, the Lord is one. Every day, probably, you've heard this. So now the Spirit of God that is around before creation itself, and then why is God plural? You guys, the Scripture doesn't work like a textbook. You know, those old textbooks where you have the definition of the word, and it's bold, and then there's a colon, and then there's the definition, and you know you have to remember that for the test. It's not how it works. It works cinematically, like a like a play or something like that. God is revealed in Scripture by the unfolding of His mighty and wonderful deeds. 
you come to realize the characters of the story as the story unfolds. What a lousy movie if it says, this is the dad. This is the mom. This is the brother who's angry at dad. Or something like that. No, it plays out and you see it. And there in that second verse, there's this different person or thing called the spirit. And then just a few verses later, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, tons of ink has been spilled on this, trying to explain why they're plural nouns, why God is plural. It is true that in some ancient Near Eastern deities, when they gave their name, they would sometimes use it as plural. It is also true that at sometimes um, plural is used for the divine counsel of his own will. I get that. It's true that pronouns sometimes just need to agree with the nouns that came, come with them. Totally cool. But it's also true that the Bible uses those in different ways and uses singular and plural at times. It's, it, it creates a mystery, an interesting reality that, that he's describing how they made people in his likeness. And at that point, using the plural, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying there is a robust doctrine of the Trinity in Genesis 1. It is not. But you got some hints. You got some things that make you wonder. And as you keep reading through the Old Testament, you have these mysterious figures that come up. There's several angels of the Lord, which literally just means messenger, and they look a lot like what Jesus ends up looking like in the, Old, in the New Testament. You have three figures that show up in Genesis 18 to see Abram, and, and one is clearly God, named so as Yahweh. The other speaks as God, and the other is this mysterious presence that's going around. Again, not full-blown Trinitarian doctrinal statement, but you got to wonder what's going on. But what the Old Testament only reveals in shadows, it becomes clear the New Testament. You've got to remember the Jewish writers of the, New Test of the New Testament were people who had read and heard and understood the Shema, that hero Israel, your God is one, all the time. And when they brought the data together and they saw what Jesus did, they saw how Jesus talked about the Spirit and that they were to worship the Spirit, they came up with, oh my gosh, this is three in one. You see it at Jesus' baptism. There's the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit like a dove. You see it in the Corinthian benediction I've given you 11, for 11 years now. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you now and forever. And you see it in the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples among all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In our tradition, which is part of a larger tradition, our doctrinal statement is this. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. The Trinity is clear, but it's clearly a mystery on how that all works together. But it was a mystery given to us in love. And as one writer says, it is the template of all reality. I said some pretty bold things, radical things last week. Try that one all these times. This is the template of all reality. It is the perfect balance between union and differentiation, autonomy and mutuality, identity and community. So why have I spent all this time talking about the Trinity when I'm talking about the foundation of our life being with God or our life with God? Our life with God has been formed by the life of God in and of himself, the life of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. 
It's the place that we are hidden and we are healed, welcomed and sent out. We are made to commune with God because God is communal and God is a community. And the overflow of that love was so great that then he made, it, he made other community members to come and join into that community. It, it, it proclaims the very bedrock of our life, the very bedrock of our life with them. It is a radical thing to say that humanity was created out of the joyous overflow of God. That has amazing ramifications for us. And that we are invited into that own fellowship. That the Father and the Son and the Spirit loved each other so much, so enjoyed that perfect communion, that they wanted to share that with us. If we can believe it for 30 seconds changes everything. Every human, you, human you've ever had contact with, one that's ever been born. Look, we, we rightly talk about God's grace and his mercy, his absolution, his exoneration of uh, our vindication of the sin that is in us, his declaring us forgiven and freed. God's grace is awesome like that, but there is more. You actually were created by grace out of the love of the Trinity. It's the bedrock for you, and it's the bedrock of you. You were made for it. We rightly call God creator and redeemer, which he absolutely is. It is a way of describing the wonderful power and grace in this world and his activity in the world. But the fact that that is in his very nature, Father, Son, and Spirit, and being a community that would create a community to be in community with him, that's amazing. Perfect harmony and love. Decide they want to share the love. The grace of creation, one author writes, is that God has opened up the dynamics of his triune life and give us, given us a share in his fellowship. And this was true at creation, and it's never not been true. And it's still true, even amid our rebellious ways. That we rebelled against the divine commission, this uh, divine, divine communion is clear in the, in, as Genesis reads on. And his, his exhaustible, inexhaustible love is the one that sends, sends the Son to be with his people, to be in re-communion with us. And this is bad news about the good news, that we really did. We, we still really do rebel from our life with God. We're like, no thanks, I'll pass. I kind of got my own way of doing things. And that wasn't just utterly disastrous for Adam. Utterly disastrous for Georgia. And he does it too. The consequences of this moving away from God is the reign of sin and death. Instead of harmony and, self, and self-giving love, it's a misshaped into a world of, of, of division and violence and exploitation. And yet still, the motivation for God is to, for us to live in that triune life with him. And so the Father authors the great rescue, and the Son accomplishes the great rescue at the cross and in the empty tomb, and then the Spirit applies this great rescue to our hearts and lives. And so much so that the Scripture says that the Spirit actually lives in those who follow Him, who have come to Him. 
taking up residence in you. It doesn't get closer than that. All in love, by love, for the sake of love. Christianity is not a sin management system. It's not. And hear me, it isn't even first about the forgiveness of our sins. Though that is huge and a necessary part. God forgives our sins because he wants to be with us and abide with us forever and ever. Amen. That's the goal. I tell you this all the time. Prodigal story is not just about the repentance. It's about the party. It's about being together. We're the lost son and the, the, the grievous father can be together again. It's father and child, the reunification of the wayward son. I need you to hear this because this is about our life with God. And this means that even if today you are so ashamed of some behavior that you did this morning or last night, you clicked where you shouldn't have, you were with or said something that you shouldn't have. This love is what invites you into fellowship with him. This is the place to go with those things. And it's freedom. And this means that if you are like, man, I'm kind of killing it right now. My life's kind of good. I'm you know, kind of gliding on my gifts right now. And I mean, they were gifts given by God. Or I'm being pretty successful right now, and I kind of got this. Also given by God. But if you're like, you know, it's okay to wake up and just go, yeah, I ain't all that. These are true gifts, and I'm very grateful. Or if you're in that place where you just want to be distracted from the even idea or the person that is calling you to himself, it's okay. The one thing we do know about our Lord Jesus is he hadn't been surprised by any of our sin, or any of our brokenness, or any of our distraction. He's calling us to himself in those spaces, on the heights and in the depths. I'm trying something this week. I actually went off. I don't want to teach in Sunday school. I'm taking one hour of the day. I've, I've suggested this kind of jokingly for years now, and then this morning I was like, I'm going to suggest this again, and, and the Spirit was like, it, or you could also just do it. And that is, I'm setting an alarm at 10, 10, 10, 10, 20, 10, 30, 10, 40, 10, 50, 10, 60, um, 11. <laughs> and it's just to remind me that my life is hidden in God, and I'm welcome back to this place. Eugene Peterson has a practice that he does on all his calendars. There's a passage, I think it's in Matthew or Mark, I can't remember where it is, but it says something like the, about the spirit of the resurrection and that it will meet you there. And so he writes in his calendar, 1046 Miller Street, he will meet you there. It's in one of the books that every pastor has to read that Eugene Peterson writes, I don't remember which one it is. It's from this divine love we were created, and it's from this divine love that we are redeemed, and it is through this divine love that we are welcome to come just as we are, train wrecks, celebrating, fools, weaklings, doing great, that we can come to him. This happened to me, I was freaking out one time, heard of pastors doing that every once in a while, 
um, my friends. Um, but it happened to me one time too, and I was kind of wigging out emotionally. Thankfully, I was um, about to talk to my counselor. The counselor and I talked through some things, and she gave me some practices to, um, to, to just kind of breathe and, and pray and kind of settle. And then I stopped, and I was kind of, I kind of sensed the love of the Trinity. And I was like, okay, I can, I'm, I'm in good shape now. And she goes, okay, so now you can actually go address the issue that was freaking you out. And I was like, that's great. And she goes, and the other thing is, don't ever do anything ever in any day that doesn't, that doesn't start from there. And I looked at her and I was like, I'll do this 25 times a day. And she was like, so be it. I was a little worried about my efficiency and all those places. And can I get some stuff done that I need to get done? But she's right and I'm leaning into it. And it's so frustrating and so hard. But it's right and it's good because it's getting at the thing. That you were, you were created in love to be in fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And you were redeemed for that end. And so go live in it. It's okay. And you're not going to get it right. You're going to get it wrong. And guess what? He's not going, ugh, messed up again. He's going, come on back. Come on back. Come back. Yeah, you did mess up. And I've forgiven you. Come on back. This love of the Trinity is the foundation of our life with God because it is the life of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us. It's hard. Hard to trust these things. Hard to believe them. Hard to trust you as an actual person wanting to be with us, Father, Son, and Spirit. You really, really want this. And it's scary. We know we can trust you. Help us, Lord. Help us, Spirit. We pray in your name. Amen.